strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Decoding the Da Vinci Code, the curse of the forbidden prophecy, what's that all about? Well, probably like me, a few years ago, you noticed lots of people were reading Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. It seemed wherever you go, people were looking at that book. What's it all about? Well, it was an historical novel. And really, as you're going to see, we have to put a question mark after the word history. Dan Brown basically claims that Jesus the Christ was just a man and that he was married to Mary Magdalene. And of course, that really got people talking, those two points, just a man and married to Mary Magdalene. Now, the question is, are its claims actually true? When we have a look at what Dan Brown wrote in that book, it's interesting some of the things he said which uh, are very important for us to understand. He claimed that Jesus' divinity, the idea that Jesus is God, he said that was the result of a vote that was taken by the Council of Nicaea back in 325 AD. In other words, uh, humans decided that he was divine at this council um, as a result of a vote, he says. Now, uh, he says it's a relatively close vote at that. Let's have a look at the facts. When you look at the facts of history on this council, on this issue, we know that only two bishops actually refused to sign the council's documents. And the, these people were removed and sent into exile by the emperor. Now, two bishops, would you call that a close vote? 316 bishops signed in favour. They agreed with that idea. Two refused. I'm not sure that even politicians would call that a close vote to against. But Dan Brown says it was a close vote. Here's another one. He claims that the Bible uh, that we've been looking at, with its historical accuracy and its prophetic writings, he claims it was a product of human beings and that it was collated or put together by the Emperor Constantine. What are the facts about that? Well, number one, we know there are 86,000 quotations from the New Testament part in what we call the early church fathers, people who lived just after the time of Jesus the Christ and his disciples, 86,000. Now, of course, these were Christian leaders who lived before Constantine. So the idea that Constantine put the thing together is quite completely inaccurate. So Dan Brown's book might have been an interesting read, but it has quite a lot of historical errors. There's just a couple that I've shared with you tonight. So it might be an interesting read, but we ought not rely on it for reliable information. And many people did. They thought that what Dan Brown was sharing was actually the facts of life, so to speak. But the question still arises, who was Jesus of Nazareth that Dan Brown talked about? Who is this person, Jesus of Nazareth? I want you to notice what Time magazine had to say a few years ago. It said the single most powerful figure, not merely in the last two millennium, but in all of human history has been Jesus of Nazareth. They're referring to the fact of the impact that he has made through his followers and so on. The single most powerful figure. 
Now, Jesus of Nazareth was actually a real person who did walk on this planet 2,000 years ago. Some people wonder if it's just a, a fictitious person. No, there actually was such a person, and almost all historians acknowledge that today. But let me share with you a few. These are not Christian writers. These are non-Christian Historians, and this is what they had to say. First of all, there was Thallus. He wrote about 52 AD, just about 20 years after Jesus the Christ had been crucified. He wrote of the death of Jesus. Then there was Serapion, a Syrian, living in 73 AD, the time of the fall of Masada, as we saw the other day. He wrote of the execution of the king of the Jews. Josephus, a Jewish historian who at first fought the Romans in that those wars we looked at last week and then joined sides with the Roman. He wrote a lot of things. He wrote about Jesus of Nazareth. Notice what he wrote. He said, Now there was about this time Jesus, he says, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds. Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men, he says, amongst us condemned him to the cross. So this Jewish historian now, not a Christian again, he wrote about him. Probably one of the greatest is Tacitus. Now, Tacitus was a Roman historian living about 55 to 120 AD. Now, Tacitus is regarded as the greatest historian of ancient Rome. Now, notice what Tacitus had to say about Jesus Christ. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, if you happen to have read a little bit about the New Testament and what it says about Jesus the Christ, you almost read that word for word. It talks about Tiberius being the emperor at the time and then Pontius Pilate and so on. And so this man, who's not a Christian, he also wrote about this person, Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, we have no question about that. Even archaeology supports the reality of the Jesus story. For example, just a few years ago now, here in Caesarea, archaeologists were excavating here when they came across an interesting stone. It's known as the Pilate Stone because Pilate, being the man who tried Jesus and condemned him to his death, it says up here on this stone about Pontius Pilate. It mentions Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea, just as the biblical writers had said. So this man, he actually existed, not just in the minds of historians, but they even found an inscription with his name on it from Caesarea, where he would have lived. Then, just a few years ago, they discovered this ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest, who tried Jesus. Now, an ossuary is a box. When they... Uh, People died in biblical times. They laid them in a tomb, and then after a while, the body decomposed. The bones are left uh, there. So they gathered the bones, and they put them into one of these boxes. Well, this one belongs to that of Caiaphas. So people who are mentioned in the biblical story of Jesus Christ, we have found evidence that the story indeed is reliable. So Jesus of Nazareth, no question, he was a real person living 2,000 years ago. But the question is, I guess, who was this Jesus? Who really was he? Now, many people feel that Jesus was just a good man, maybe like Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or Jeremiah the prophet or some good man. Well, who did Jesus claim to be? Notice who he claimed to be when we go to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, as we begin the book and as we end the book, we see something interesting. 
It says here at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And this is Jesus the Christ talking because he's the one who gave John the revelation. So the claim of Jesus here is I'm the Alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, I'm the first and I am the last. That's his claim. Now, when you go to the front of the book of Revelation, the first chapter, it says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, a term for God himself. So Jesus in Revelation, this book, he clearly claimed to be God Almighty. That's the claim that he made in other parts of the New Testament as well. In fact, he's quoting, or this passage is a quoting from the prophet Isaiah, whose writings were in the Dead Sea Scroll, you remember. Two almost complete scrolls from the prophet Isaiah. We mentioned one nine meters long and had a, a replica of it the other evening. Thus says the Lord, that's the word for Jehovah, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. So when Jesus the Christ in Revelation was claiming to be the first and the last, he's claiming actually to be Jehovah, God Almighty. Now, I want you to think about that. If I got up here this evening and I claimed to be God, you would say, something's wrong with that guy. <laughs> He's a bit crazy. Now, you think about it. Buddha, Muhammad, Jeremiah, Confucius, many of these great religious leaders never claimed to be God, but Jesus the Christ clearly did claim to be God. So he would either be mad, crazy for saying something which he was not, he needs to go somewhere or see some psychiatrists. Or number two, he's bad because I was taught when I was a kid, if you said, you, 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 you said, this is what I did or this is what, who I am, but you know you're not, that's called a lie and lying was not, a, is not a good thing. And so if Jesus claims to be God and he knows he's not, but he makes the claim, then he's a liar. He's not a good man. So he's either mad, he's bad, or he's who he claimed to be. They're the only three options we have. Was Jesus God, or was he bad, or was he mad? Those are the three options that we have. Now, when we go to the, to the, um, to the ancient records, we can, we can work this out. Was he God? Can we find it out? Yes, and I'm going to share with you evidence this evening so you can work this out in your own mind as to was he who he claimed to be. We're going to go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls tonight again. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947, 100 to 200 years before the time of Christ. We know that from the carbon date, radiocarbon dating from coins that were found in the start of the script. We mentioned that the other evening. These Dead Sea Scrolls have the ancient predictions with a proven track record. We saw some of them last weekend. The book of Daniel, a favorite of the Dead Sea Scroll writers. We saw two prophecies last weekend, very clearly, before many of the events that they predicted actually happened because we came down to our own time. But these ancient predictions also include predictions about Jesus of Nazareth, 
100 to 200 years before he's born. Now, these are not the originals. These are the copies of the copies. The originals were before that, but they contain predictions in the Dead Sea Scrolls about this person. Now, these prophecies or predictions in the Old Testament scrolls and the Dead Sea Scroll, they talk about things such as his birth, his life, his death before these things even happen. Now, the Old Testament contains about 300 what we call messianic predictions, predictions about the Messiah to come, 300 of them. Now, Peter Stoner, uh, an astronomer, and a mathematician, he decided to do a bit of probability and analysis on the figures here, on some of these, if we had predictions here. He, he said, look, what's the chances of just eight of these messianic prophecies? Just What's the chance that they just happen to work out for one person in time? So predictions are made, eight of them, and eight of them worked in someone's life. This is the probability. One chance in 100 with those zeros after. What's that? 100, whatever it is. You know, it's a, if you're a gambling person, you're not going to go there, are you? Not one in two by a long shot. So the chance of them just happening, eight of them on one person is one with all those zeros after. Now he said, well, what about if it's 50 messianic prophecies happening on the one person? Well, now here it is now. One in with all those zeros after it. That's the chances of 50 of these predictions. But remember, there are 300 of them. If you want to get an idea of what that number's like, it's sort of like filling up all of Australia with $2 coins to a level of about half a metre high and painting one of them red, one red in all of that right across the surface of Australia to half a metre deep. What's your chances of pulling the red one out in your first hit? That's it. (laughs) Not very good, as you can see. That's the probability of 50 of them happening just by chance on one person. But there's 300 of these predictions. So we're going to have a look at some of them this evening. Prophecies that reveal, actually you're going to see this evening, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God in human flesh. So let's have a look at some of these predictions. First of all, here's a prediction about his birth. We could have a look at many of them, but you'd be here all night. So we're giving you a holiday tonight. You fi- we finish at about quarter past eight. This is your rest night. <laughs> Not too different sessions tonight that's tomorrow and sunday all right prophecies of his birth take this one the place of his birth it's mentioned about 700 bc back in the time of micah the prophet this is what it says here but you bethlehem ephrata now notice it mentions the bethlehem because there were a couple of two or three bethlehems This is specifically mentions which one? You, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, the villages and so on, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So he says this person who's going to be the ruler in Israel, he's going to be one who's never had a beginning. He's from everlasting. Uh, That's a a characteristic of God, isn't it? He never had a beginning. So Israel's ruler or king is going to be from eternity, says the prophet. This is 700 BC when he makes that prediction, the prophet Micah. Now, you remember the Christmas story. We all like the Christmas story. It's a beautiful time of the year, isn't it? You remember that Joseph and Mary 
lived up in Nazareth and Mary was pregnant. Now Mary has got to travel quite a ways as a pregnant woman. Here is a map of Israel. Nazareth is up the top and Bethlehem's down the bottom. That's a distance of about 130 kilometers. Now, if you're pregnant and you're about to give birth, ladies, you do not jump on a donkey to ride for 130 kilometers, do you? That's not smart, not unless you want to have the baby straight away. You usually don't do it that way. So Mary, there's really, why would she ever travel that distance? Well, fortunately, Caesar Augustus made a decree. And he decreed that everybody was going to be enrolled in a census at this very time. And the people had to go to their own homeland. And notice what it says in the New Testament. It came to pass in those days while she's pregnant that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or sense in a censor. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own Country. Now, we have evidence that such decrees were made, such censuses were taken in the Roman world. In fact, we have one that indicates from the land of Egypt, one of the Romans leading in Egypt, ruling in Egypt, he mentions, this is a later census, that everybody had to return to their own home for the census. So when the New Testament says that Joseph came from Bethlehem and the whole family had to go with him, who was, in this case, just his wife, because the child hadn't yet been born. That's an historically accurate statement, because that's exactly what we find when archaeologists have found documents regarding other censuses taken by the Romans. So they end up in Bethlehem. And unquestionably, she would not have done that, gone on that trip because she was about to give birth. So she's, the baby is born in Bethlehem, and we all know the Christmas story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's the record now of the New Testament. The Old Testament predicted it, 700 BC, and then these New Testament writers wrote this event down. And so Jesus, from this prediction, is the one from eternity. He fulfills that prediction. The one who would be ruler is from eternity and would be born in Bethlehem. He is God in human flesh. That's what the prophets are indicating here. Now, what about prophecies toward the end of his life? Well, there are a number of them in the Old Testament. For example, his betrayal by a friend is mentioned 1000 BC in the Psalms. Notice what it says here. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, we all know who the man was that betrayed Jesus of Nazareth. His name is, I was going to say famous, infamous, Judas the man who betrayed Jesus of Nazareth. Now, notice what Jesus had to say about this. I know whom I have chosen, said Jesus, but that the scripture, that's that reference we just read from the Psalms, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me, he says, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus himself, in fact, saw this as a clear fulfillment from the prophet uh, there in the Psalms. It even mentions the amount of money that he would be betrayed for with. 450 BC, we find this in one of the predictions of the ancient prophets. Notice what it says here in the book of Zechariah. 
Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, they weighed out for my wages. Notice the my refers back to Jehovah. Thus says the Lord, they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, says Zechariah. Now, question here. How did they know that a slave would be worth 30 pieces of silver 450 years before? How, how did they work that out? Uh, you know... You don't even know, I should say, the price of bread next year. You just know that it's going to go up. You don't even know the price of gas next year or petrol next year. You just know it's going to go up. Usually, I think it went down this year for a change because of the oil situation. But here's a prophet, 450 years before, he predicts that this one who's going to be betrayed will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. How did the prophets know that well the reason is is because the bible as we've seen is no common book and jesus is no ordinary person as you can see here and his the predictions he made when we looked at last week in the destruction of jerusalem itself all right now here's another prediction where the money would be brought and how the money would be spent that jesus was betrayed on Quite incredible. Back again to 450 BC. Zechariah continues. The Lord said to me, he says, throw it to the potter. That's the money. That princely price that they set on me, the Lord. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, he says, and I threw them into the house of the Lord. This is a name in the biblical writings for the temple. For the potter, he says. Now, You've read the story, I'm sure, of Judas, or you've seen it portrayed in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film. You will remember that when Judas betrayed Jesus, uh, and then as he watched the proceedings, he he realized that Jesus was actually going to die. He didn't think he would die. And so he brings the silver back to the priests here in the temple. And what did he do with this silver? He threw it down at their feet. It says here, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went and hanged himself. A tragic ending to this man's life. But the chief priests, it says, they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field. An incredible prediction and an amazing fulfillment right here. Notice prophecy is so precise. And these ones were made 450 BC. Number one, it said very clearly who would betray a friend. Number two, the amount he would be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver. Number three, where the money would be brought to the temple. What they would do with the money, they would buy the potter's field, and that's exactly what happened. This is no ordinary book or no ordinary human being. This man, Jesus, in other words, the prophet is telling us is God because he says, the Lord said, this is what they would do to me, says the prophet. Fourthly, the biblical prophets mentioned the method of his torture. Notice 700 BC, these words were said by the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, I gave my back, he says, to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Well, of course, I'm sure you saw that film, The Passion of the Christ, and you saw the way Jesus was treated, the way Mel Gibson portrayed that 
might have just been slightly over the top, but not far off because we know how the Romans treated people. For example, he was flogged twice with what we call the 30, 40 lashes minus one which means he received 39 lashes with a Roman whip, which consisted of pieces of leather, and on it was tied pieces of bone or lead. And you can imagine when a man was beaten with that and the, the soldier pulled back the whip, it would just tear pieces of flesh out with those that bone or that lead. And he received that twice, so 78 lashes that night before his crucifixion. And no wonder he could hardly carry the cross and couldn't carry the cross because of how much blood and so on he had lost. He was spat upon. That's a very clear thing that's mentioned here by the Romans and others, Jews themselves, sadly. Jesus is Jehovah, his God in human flesh. This is what the prophets are telling us. The method of his death is even mentioned 1000 BC in the book of Psalms. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is, of course, crucifixion. Now, what's interesting is crucifixion has not always been practiced. We believe it probably began with the Assyrians and continued on and got the Romans perfected the art, if we could call it that. But here is the the bones from a man who's been crucified at around the same time as Jesus of Nazareth. This was found in Jerusalem. And you can see the nail has gone through his ankle bone. And this is the way Jesus was crucified through with they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, crucifixion was actually practiced from about 519 BC through to 320 AD. Yet the prophecy was made 1000 BC, right in the right time period when actually the crucifixion was actually practiced. This is when it actually occurred. Jesus is the Christ. Now, this next prophecy we're going to spend a little more time on. I don't expect you to remember this, but I do expect you to, fin- when we finish, to say, that is incredible. That's all I want you to remember of what we're going to share now, perhaps. But this refers to the time of his ministry, when he would actually come to this world and start his work, I should say, when he would begin his work. This is prophecy is made about 530 B.C., the prophet who made this prediction was Daniel. Daniel is writing of the Messiah. Now, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah or the Christ. And the claim to be the Messiah was a claim to be God. Even the Jewish leaders took it that way. You will notice when Jesus was on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Jewish court, before Caiaphas, it says these words, and the high priest, that's Caiaphas, whose ossuary we just saw a moment ago, said to him, said to Jesus, swear by oath, are you the Christ or the Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus said to him, it is as you have said, I am the Messiah, in other words. Then the high priest tore his robes, saying he has spoken blasphemy. For the Jewish people, blasphemy was that somebody was claiming to be God. Jesus was accused of blasphemy when he said, the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. They said only God can forgive sins. You're blaspheming. Jesus here, as the Messiah, was clearly seen to be referring, saying that he was God as the Messiah. 
Now, was Jesus the Messiah and therefore God in human flesh? Let's have a look at what the prophet said 530 BC. So we're going to go to the ninth chapter now of the book of Daniel. We saw a bit of this prediction in this chapter last weekend when we talked about the fall of Jerusalem. Daniel predicted that and got it right very clearly. Now let's notice what he says about this person or the Messiah, the Messiah or the Christ. Notice what Daniel says. Now, you will recall, before we get into this prophecy, that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. We saw that last weekend. Nebuchadnezzar, that great Babylonian king, made three raids against Jerusalem. And in the final raid, he destroyed the city, destroyed Solomon's temple, and flattened the city. And the Jewish people were taken to Babylon, many of them. Among them was Daniel the prophet. Now, Daniel is in Babylon now. And he realizes that this 70-year period that they'll be in Jerusalem for is actually over. It's finished. And that was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah, by the way. So Daniel goes to his knees and he prays that God will let Israel now leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. That's what he's praying about when suddenly Gabriel appears before him, a heavenly angel. I want you to notice what Gabriel says. And as I said, don't try to remember this. Just say, wow, when we're finished, okay? You might want to get your calculator out at this point because we're going to do a bit of maths tonight for just a few moments. But you'll be able to just be amazed at what this man wrote, 530 B.C. Gabriel appears before Daniel and he informs Daniel when the Messiah or the Christ will come or when he will appear. He shows him that very clearly. He says, Daniel, 70 weeks are determined. That means cut off like you chop something off, like chop your arm off. 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people and your holy city. Now, everybody knows who is Daniel's people and his holy city. It means that Israel and Jerusalem. He says, 70 weeks are cut off for your people. Notice what he says next. Know therefore and understand. So he's telling Daniel, you you need to understand something, my, my friend. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah. So he says, from this point to the Messiah, there shall be, he says, seven weeks and 62 Weeks. All right, let's put it up here now. 70 weeks for your people, Jerusalem and your, your city, Jerusalem and Israel, your people. Now he says 69 weeks, seven weeks, he said, and 62. So I do my calculation, seven and 62 is 69, right? You got that? Nothing rocket science here, is there? 69 weeks, he says. So he says, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, he says, will be this period of time, 69 weeks. Okay, so this will take us to the Messiah. All right, now, when was the command given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? So the Jewish people are in Babylon for 70 years. When was the command given to go to restore and rebuild up their city, to fix it up again. 
Well, we know when this command was given, but notice Daniel predicts it. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. When was that command given? Very clearly in the book of Ezra. By the way, in this series of programs, you will be so amazed that you get a bit of a handle on so much of history here, including this period of time. In the book of Ezra, in the biblical writers, you have the story of how Israel came out of Babylon through King Cyrus. We mentioned that last weekend and how they came back to Jerusalem. Well, it was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, one of the Persian kings after this, that he'd issued a decree and he talks about how they can restore Jerusalem at that time. Now, we know when that decree was made in B.C., A.D. time and all that sort of thing. The seventh year of Artaxerxes, we know from history, occurred in the year 457 B.C. In fact, in our Diggings magazine recently, we wrote an article on this very thing. They have found papyrus documents on the Elephantine Island from Egypt in the Nile, because that's where many Jews also went down to Egypt when others went to Babylon, where they found documents that show very clearly that this date is precise here. 457 BC, the seventh year of Artaxerxes. So we've got our starting date, 457, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto now the Messiah, says Daniel. Now, 69 weeks is how many days? 483. So that you can see that clearly, let's do the sums. Just get your calculator out. Your math table's out and multiply 69 by 7, right? And you'll come to 483 prophetic days, he says. From that time to that time. Now, there's a principle in the prophecies of the Bible, especially that of the books of Daniel and the Revelation. And that principle is this, and you're going to see it again and again as we track down through history and the prophecies of of the amazing books of Daniel and Revelation. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day is one year. Now, this doesn't mean everywhere in the Bible. It's talking about prophecy. Let me give you two examples of this. You may recall the story of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt under Moses, if you recall the story. They came out of Egypt and they wandered through the Sinai Desert. Well, while they were in the Sinai Desert, they sent out some spies, 12 spies went out to check out what we call Israel today, which was in the hands of the Canaanites. They just wanted to suss the land out a little bit before they went in. Now, 10 of those spies came back and said, man, that's a fantastic place that we're going to, but the people that are too tall, they're giants, man. We could never tackle these guys. Two other guys came back and said, yeah, they are giants, but we've got a great God and he's on our side. But the rest, all of Israel sided with the ten who said, nah, we couldn't do it. And they decided not to go in. And because of that, God gave Moses a prediction. He said, listen, Moses, these people will not follow. So as they wandered, as the spies went out 40 days in the Canaanite Canaanite lands and searched the land out and just sussed it out, so Israel will wander in the desert 40 days years one day for each year now there's another example of it it's probably even more important and that's from the prophet ezekiel who's ezekiel ezekiel is a contemporary of daniel daniel is living in the palace of the king of nebuchadnezzar as we saw last weekend ezekiel is living with the jewish captives in their part of the city 
Ezekiel is a prophet as well. And Ezekiel is told to do some street drama on some occasions. You've seen people do street drama. Well, Ezekiel did it. He was told, for example, on one occasion, Ezekiel, take a pot and lie down on your side next to that pot. You can imagine people would come along the streets of Babylon there and there's this man lying on the street around a pot. They'd say, what are you doing, Ezekiel? What's going on here? And he was doing a little portrayal, a little drama of what was going to happen to the city of Jerusalem in the years to come and so on. And he was told, every day you lie on your side, it represents a year. I've laid on you a day for each year. This is the principle of Bible prophecy here, and we have it in this uh, case as well. So 483 prophetic days then represents what? 483 literal years in time. This is what Daniel is sharing with Uh, Gabriel, I should say, is sharing with Daniel. So 69 weeks, really, he's referring to 483 years of literal time. Now, let's do the sums now. We've got our starting date, when the command was to restore and build Jerusalem, 457. We just need now to add 483 years to that, and we'll come to what? 27 AD. Now, I can almost see some of you doing your maths and you're saying, hang on, shouldn't that be 26 AD? Because you just need to take 457 from 483. Shouldn't that be 26? Yes, but you forgot that when you move from BC to AD, there's no zero year, so you have to add one. 27 AD. All right, so let's put it up now. So the prophet's prophecy said, or that uh, Daniel was told from the starting the restoring, the command to restore and build Jerusalem, 457, unto the Messiah, 27 AD. All right, now let's see what happens. What happened in 27 AD? Well, we just need to go to the New Testament. And when you go to the writings of Luke, who's really called the historian of the New Testament. Luke gives so many details. Sometimes when you might have read this, you wonder why does he go into such details for some very good reasons, and here's one tonight. Notice what Luke said. Luke said, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And it says, while he prayed, you may remember the story, you've seen pictures of it, I'm sure, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove right upon him. And a voice came from heaven, and notice what the voice said. It said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. All right, so there's the incident. Now, we know exactly when the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar was, because we have the Roman dates and so on. We can match them up. It's the year 27 AD. There's no question about that. The 15th year of Tiberius was 27 AD. Now, Luke records in his second book that he wrote in the New Testament, the book of Acts, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to give you a Greek lesson tonight. You didn't think you'd get a math lesson tonight. Now here comes a, a, a Greek and a Hebrew lesson. The word Mashiach or Messiah means anointed. The word Christos is the Greek word or the word Christ, and it means anointed. The 
Two words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, and both mean the anointed one. So what's happening? At his baptism, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, the Bible is telling us. Right on time, 27 AD, Jesus became Jesus the Christ, if you could put it that way. Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christus, right on time. Which is why you may have read these words in the book of Mark and wondered why Jesus said them. Jesus said when he began his work, he said, the time is fulfilled, meaning Daniel's prophetic clock has struck the hour. I have arrived. The time is fulfilled. I have come in fulfillment of this prediction. So according to Daniel's prophecy now, here Jesus is the Mashiach, therefore he is God in human flesh. Here is another prediction. That's why this great British scientist and mathematician, Sir Isaac Newton, you know the story with the apple that fell out of the tree and hit him on the head and hence he discovered or formulated the laws of gravity and mentioned all those things. You remember that. This man was also a very keen student of the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation. And that's why in referring to the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, he said, this is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Let me just show you how how clearly this has helped many people. I have a friend I was digging with in Jordan just a few years ago, Alexander Bolotnikov. That's pretty Russian, isn't it? Well, Bolotnikov is a Russian Jew. And he, he has a fascinating story. Back in the 1980s, Alexander Bolotnikov was an, was an avowed communist in, in, in Russia. He, had, he gave his life for the Communist Party. And he wanted to go to the University of Moscow to study science, but for some strange reason, he could not get into that university. So his dad and he did some sniffing around, trying to work out why they wouldn't let him go to the university. After a while, they discovered why. It was because he was Jewish. <laughs> there was some anti-Semitism going on there. And so Bolotnikov said, well, if that's what the Communist Party does to one of their most uh, avid followers, I quit. And he he, he left the Communist Party. And Bolotnikov began to search for his Jewish roots because he was a, a secular Jew at this time. He began to search and find out what, where, where his background was. And in the course of trying to work out everything in his head, he came across some people, some Christian people, who shared this amazing prophecy from the book of Daniel. And when they went through it, like we've seen it this evening and gone through, this was Bolotnikov's word, Jesus is the Christ. He could see very clearly that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, therefore the Son of God. And many, many Jewish people down through history have seen exactly that from this amazing prophecy of Daniel written 530 BC, which brings us tonight to the curse of the forbidden prophecy. Because sadly, there has been some Jewish rabbis down through time who have not wanted the people to read the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel for fear that some of them would see that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah himself. And so some of the rabbis, certainly not all of them, have tried to dissuade people from reading the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Here is one of those 
curses that's written. May the spirits of those who attempt to calculate the final time of Mashiach's coming, may they expire. This is from Sanhedrin. You can see it here. So here's an amazing prophecy that many people have seen clearly points to Jesus the Christ. And sadly, some rabbis did not want their people to read it. And so tried to discourage them from doing so. Prophecies you see reveal Jesus is the Christ. But also there are prophecies of his resurrection. In the book of Psalms, 1000 BC, these words were written. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One, which is a reference to God, to see corruption. In other words, the Holy One, God himself, is going to go into a grave one day in human flesh, but he will not see corruption. Now, we all know the story of the resurrection and Easter and so on. Christ's resurrection was clearly is one of the most amazing events in the New Testament writings. Jesus said these words before he died. He said, I lay down my life and I have power to take it again. You and I certainly don't have that power. Our pulse is the funeral march to the tomb. We all know that one day we're going in the box and there's no way we're coming out under our own steam. But Jesus the Christ could say, I lay down my life and I have power to take it up again because he's claiming to be God in human flesh. His tomb is empty today. I love taking people to this tomb or a tomb. We're not sure which tomb Jesus really was buried in. It doesn't really matter. Uh, The fact is that he's alive. And there is no body in the tomb of Jesus. The Lord has risen. He is not here. He is alive. By the way, we're having a special filming of the film called Risen. It's an incredible film uh, that's coming up on Saturday week. And you'll want to see that film. Uh, This man is seeing the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I can recommend that if you're interested that you you join in that special viewing that we have right here in the cinemas here we've been able to get it to put on on Sunday the 23rd. You'll enjoy that film after our program. Now, Old Testament prophecies, in other words, reveal that Jesus is God. He is who he claimed to be. Now, the question as we finish tonight is, so what? So what that Jesus is God? What does it really matter? It matters a lot. For example, in the book of Revelation, these words are mentioned by Jesus. We read the start of it, but we didn't read the final words. I am the first and the last. That is the Almighty we saw. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And then he adds these words after saying amen, or that's for true. I have the keys of hage, which is the grave, and of death. In other words, Jesus not only rose from the dead, he has the way to get us out of the box, so to speak. He has the keys of life after death, says he. The offer, in other words, of eternal life that Jesus makes in his story is a real one. It's not just some makeup idea. It's a real one. This man, it was predicted, would rise from the dead and he would have power to help other people get out of the grave. Jesus said to one of his followers, to Martha, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He or she who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's good news tonight in a world where we see too many 
loved ones laid to rest. He has the power to take people out. God has given us eternal life, says John, one of his followers. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Jesus the Christ clearly not only claimed to have risen from the dead, but to have the power to give everybody else who believes in him that same ability to live after they have died. So what that Jesus is God? Yes, the offer of eternal life is a real one. But here's another thing. Lo, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. How can that be? Because Jesus is God in human flesh. He has that ability to be with us always through the ways of God. What does that mean? It means you and I are absolutely never alone if this Jesus is our friend. We are never alone. You know, in our world today, we have never lived so closely and yet had so many lonely people. We live on top of each other in high-rise buildings, but the world is full of people who are lonely, people who have nobody at the end. When everyone lets you down, you have God that you can count on. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So what that Jesus is God? It's a big so what, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. One of the most beautiful things that a person can experience is to have their past forgiven. You can sleep like a baby. This is the promise because of who Jesus is. He can forgive our past. So what that Jesus is God? Another great so what is this one? Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's a dynamic promise, all power. Paul put it this way, one of the friends of Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the power that comes from Jesus of Nazareth. You think, power for life at its very best. There are many people today who desperately seek power today to break the chains of guilt that bothers them from the past. Jesus has the power to break those chains. The shackles of immorality. There are many people who are trapped in some sexual problem or whatever it is and we can't get out. Jesus has the power to break the shackles of immorality. Jesus has the power to break bondage to materialism. Many people today in our world are killing themselves for making things and to earn a buck and to get ahead. Jesus has the power to break our slavery to materialism. He has the power to break slavery and bondage to alcohol and drugs. I have met many people who have been slaves to some of these things, and Jesus has given them power. One of the most amazing men I came across was a former member of ACDC. He was so stoned on drugs all the time that they threw him out. And those guys, many of them, were on drugs themselves, but he was just beyond it. Then that young man found hope and peace in Jesus Christ. His life was dramatically changed. Different person altogether. The power to break slavery to alcohol and drugs. The power to break the shackles of anger and violence. And that's a real thing in our society today. There is power in Jesus of Nazareth. Let me share with you in closing the story of my own parents. It's quite fascinating. My, my parents, we would call them probably, they were certainly, well, we could let's call them pagans because that's what they were. They said they lived for two things, this weekend and next weekend. Because this weekend they 
went to the dances, they went to the discos and so on, they got drunk and they put their head in the toilet bowl on Sunday morning to get over it all. <laughs> and she, they said, the rest of the week was like a black hole till we got to next weekend and we did it all over again. That's how their life went from one weekend to another with a black hole in between. That was their life. Well, one day my mum was working in a shirt factory and she saw a young woman there. She thought, what's What's different about this lady? She's, she's, she's got something in life. She, she has a tremendous hope about the future. She has a peace about her. And she has a, a meaning and a purpose in life. What is it? And as my mum stuck around this young woman for a while, she realized it was this person, Jesus, who had changed this young woman's life. And so this young lady helped my mother to find uh, peace and, and assurance and hope and a meaning in life from Jesus Christ. And so my mother's life was changed when she asked Jesus the Christ to take control. Well, up to this point in time, my mum used to lock my dad out of the house all the time because he was often drunk when he was drunk, which was often. And, and, and something said to her in her head at this time when she just, her life was changing, stop locking him out of the house. That's not really a good thing to do to your husband. So she would go to the door as mad as a meat axe. She would want to give him five of the very best. And she'd get to the door and she'd, she'd just say, God, help me to love him. And the moment she asked God to help her in that situation, she said the anger always just drained out of her like that. She opened the door up, welcomed my father home. Well, you know, you can guess what happened. My dad begins to wonder what's got into this woman sort of thing. How come no five of the best anymore sort of thing? He's up in Carnarvon in northwestern Australia there. He worked for Telecom. He's in the hotel where he was staying. He's got his beer glass in one hand and his cigarette in the other, smoking like a chimney and, and drinking like a fish. And he thought about my mother and what was happening. And a voice spoke to him, not an audible voice, but in his head. And the voice said to him, what are you doing with your life, Harvey? That's my dad's name. And as he thought about my mother and what was happening in his own life, he said, Basically, God helped me. Do you know that was the last cigarette and last drink my dad ever had in his life? He was a completely changed man, and the home became a peaceful home. You see, there is power in Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just a nice story. It's not just an amazing prophecy that Daniel was given 530 years before time. It was a prophecy given to help us to realize that this is for real that this can actually be of help to us in the here and the now. And that's the good thing about the Bible prophecies, as I said. Bible prophecies are not just so that we can sort of have a window on the future, but they are to give us hope. They are given to give us meaning and purpose in life today. And many, many people, as they've come across these amazing predictions, they've realized that it's true and that God can do something in and for them today. So an amazing thing. Here is a life that we can have of power and of hope and of peace because the prophecies point clearly to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human flesh. Now, this is an incredible prediction, as you can see, the one from Daniel especially tonight. 
because it nails it for us down through history, down through time. But we haven't yet finished with this prophecy. This prophecy continues, and we'll take it up again in another, another program coming up. But you will see very clearly this prophecy takes us right on down to our own day. We've only just seen a portion of it. We began it last weekend when we saw this prophecy, Daniel 8 and 9. It began with the Medo-Persians. It moved to the Greeks, mentioning them by name. The Alexander the Great, the first king and so on, divided into four and all of that. Then the Roman Empire that would actually crucify the Christ and so on. We saw all that last week. And now in this part of it, in Daniel 9, that portion of the prophecy, we see it directs us to the Jesus the Christ. But it's going to take us on down further through time. I tell you, my friend, tonight, the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation are incredible. And they are given to help us to have hope and a future and a purpose in life. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.